Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for every person that's in this room. I thank you that your spirit is here with us. So Jesus, we ask that in these next few moments that we have together that you would quiet our hearts, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We ask that you be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, so we're in a series this summer called The Words of Life, and this is a story about, or these are stories about the life of Jesus and the words that he spoke during his ministry. This particular passage in John 8 is probably one of the most recognizable stories of the life of Jesus. You've no doubt probably seen, uh, you've certainly heard it before. If you've, if you've uh, read any of the Bible, you've probably even seen a movie depicting this story a few times. It's a very popular story to kind of be uh, told and talked about. And it's easy to understand why. It's sort of inherently dramatic. You can sort of picture Jesus in this setting, sort of, you know, sticking it to the old guys. He's supporting the underdog. Um, What's interesting, though, is that throughout history, a lot of people have sort of said, they've stopped, and this has been quite a controversial verse. In fact, some people thought it's sort of too good to be true, the way that it's written, the way that it's laid out. Uh, For both of you that brought your Bibles this morning, um, if you look uh, above the verse, there's a little bracket, it probably says something like this, Uh, and if you have a modern translation, it says, the earliest manuscripts... And many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses, holy or in part, after John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24.53. As if the Bible didn't have enough discrepancy about it already, they have to go in and actually say, hey, by the way, guys, we don't actually know where these verses came from for sure. In the Bible, check it out. What does that mean? And I'll tell you what it means. But first of all, I just want to say that this brings up a very interesting point about how we all approach the reading of the Bible. And that is essentially that we need to take what the Bible says very seriously. That the Bible is worthy, very worthy of our close attention and um, investigation. And here's why. Um, There's a lot of things in the Bible that are confusing, that don't make sense. I mean... Please, be honest with yourself. Let's be honest together. It's confusing. It is really hard to know what ex- how could this possibly mean what it's saying. Or, better yet, they go on and say, we don't exactly know if this is right or not, but we're going to put it in there. If it's saying things like that, and it's confusing, if we just say, well, I'm not really going to worry about it. I'm just going to go ahead and read it, or I'm just going to skip over whatever. Something can happen to each of us. A little seed of apathy can get planted in our minds and in our hearts. We just say uh, a seed of disbelief that says, you know what, really, the Bible, it's good, I get it, but okay, this is, this is sort of, uh, it's, it's made up a little bit, and that's fine, and that's fine, and it loses some of its power. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 that the word of God is alive and it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It's saying that the word of God has no soft edges about it. There's nothing in the Bible that is not intended to be there. And so when we see things like this, we see things that are confusing, it's on us to take this book that's been passed down to history and understand its meaning. 
And I think we need to hold that for any of you that call yourselves Christians here, or even if you're not a Christian and you are investigating and learning, to not stick your head in the sand and say, well, it doesn't matter, I don't want to know, I don't want to know anything else about the Bible, I just want to, I believe it, that's it. And actually say, no, what is it saying? What is the evidence? What do things like this mean? What about the things that are confusing? So that you don't and I don't, that we don't together allow apathy to settle into our hearts when we think about this. You have people on all sorts of the spectrum when it comes to saying, what does the Bible actually mean? You have people that say, it doesn't matter any evidence that I ever hear to the contrary. The Bible is true. I believe it. I don't even want to hear evidence. Or they might even say that it's heretical to even question the Bible and the Bible's authority. And you've got people on the other side of the spectrum that say the Bible is clearly a bunch of made-up stories. It says it in certain places that it's made up. It's been sort of used by people in power to keep people that have been uh, illiterate, uh, keep them under control. And they, they won't even hear, they won't even begin to believe that the Bible could possibly be true. I don't think we can take either approach. I think for the Bible to really mean something to us, we have to take it seriously. We have, to invest, we have to investigate for ourselves, weigh the evidence, and seek out the answers. So that's why it's important when we see things like this. So what about this particular place? And this isn't the only place in the Bible where something similar to this is listed out. So what this essentially means is that the Bible, when it came passed down to us into our modern translations that we have now, I know it wasn't written in English uh, originally, um, as it came down, it was based on what we call manuscripts. You've heard that word before. They're essentially scraps of paper or scrolls uh, that had the words written down. Um, throughout history, these manuscripts have been discovered, preserved, protected, copied. And this is how we begin to, to piece together what the Bible is. And there's, I, I don't want to go into the entire history of how all of it's been chosen and selected. You can look into that yourself. But essentially, what something like this says is that there are a lot of manuscripts out there, and some of them are in pieces, some of them are, some of them are whole, but essentially we have manuscripts that don't include these ver- this very specific group of verses of John 7, 53 to 8, 11. It says that there's some eyewitness accounts that don't include it as well. But there is enough evidence that it's in enough of the manuscripts that it would do more... Uh, uh, injustice to, to the historical evidence that we have to not include it than it would be to include it. So essentially what most scholars will say is this, that this account in John 1 to 11 is probably a true, is likely a very true account of a story from Jesus' life. Because when these started as oral traditions, they came passed down, they eventually were written down, and then they passed down to be the, the, the passages that we have now. So this is just, there's too much evidence for this to not have been an eyewitness account of something that happened in the life of Jesus. Now, we don't know, based on manuscript evidence, if John wrote it, if Luke wrote it, if somebody else wrote it. But we know that it very likely happened. And because it parallels so much of what Jesus did through the life of his ministry. And so, you know, if you look at the very first English translation of the Bible that was written from the Greek manuscripts... You have John 1 to 11 in there. And you don't even have the brackets. You don't even have a disclaimer. They said, those are enough here. We're clearly going to include it. Um, and then even, even the King James Version of the Bible has it in there. No brackets, no disclaimer. It's only in the more modern translations that you might have that has this in there. And essentially, like the translators said, we just want to disclose what we know. We want to be as precise as possible in putting forward what we know. 
And I actually take that to be quite a good sign that these people are, when they were doing the translations, that they were trying to be as genuine and as articulate and as precise as possible. So that's why it's in there. That's what that passage means. And I encourage you, if you come against something in Scripture that is confusing, do the research, investigate, bring friends around you and investigate together. There's a lot of resources out there. Let's not just kind of pass over everything um, that we don't understand. So um, in this passage in particular, what is it telling us about Jesus? What does it tell us about his ministry? Why would it be so controversial? So this passage essentially, um, I think that it's about authority. You have two authorities of the day. You have the religious, leader, the religious Jewish leaders on one side. You have Jesus on the other side, a clearly an authority in his own right. And they're in a, almost like a makeshift courtroom of sorts with a woman standing in the middle who's clearly shaken and abused, her life hanging in the balance, and they're, and they're battling it out. They're sparring it out. This question is ultimately about authority because the Jewish leaders were, at this point in Jesus' ministry, they, were, they, they knew that he was not just a small problem. He was a huge problem. And so they were willing to go public with their accusations of him. And this was one of their most carefully laid out plans to try to show Jesus as a fraud. So Jesus takes in the story essentially what is what we would call entrapment today. He takes their plan and he doesn't just make it a nice story. He actually shows each of us. If you're curious today, Jesus in the story shows us what the true essence of Christianity is. And um, I just want to break it down just into three things and then a couple ways that we can respond. So this, this story, um, it shows Jesus, his commitment to the law. It shows his authority to judge. And it gives his verdict for the guilty. His, commi- his commitment to the law, his authority to judge, and his verdict for the guilty. His commitment to the law. <clears throat> um, when you read the story, there is no question about the guilt of this woman, is there? Nobody says, well, let's, let's really take a minute here and figure out if she's guilty. They make it very clear. They say that she was caught in the act. She was stopped in the act of committing adultery. It doesn't get any more clearly than that. Everybody knew what was going on. The question was not about, is she guilty? The question was, what is her punishment? What is her punishment? And so when Jesus is confronted about how to punish her, he doesn't say, if you notice very carefully, what it says. He doesn't say, don't stone her. He doesn't say, well, nope, she doesn't deserve the punishment. He says, she deserves the punishment. Stone her. But what he does is he questions the Pharisees' uh, qualifications to carry out that punishment. What do I mean? He stands in the gap between this woman and the Pharisees. And they're saying she deserves to die. He says he agrees. But he says you do not have the qualification to be the executioners of her because of the way that you have brought your case against her. He has a commitment to the law that God passed down from the beginning that formed the Israelite nation. And it's very clear what the law says. It's very clear what they were saying needed to happen to her. 
that every adulterer needed in, in, the, in, the, in the law was to be stoned. But we can actually read the law. Uh, if you look at the next slide, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it's in there. It says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Also in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So these Pharisees were bringing a legal case against this woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. And Jesus stands in front of them and says, your case doesn't hold water. There was no even Jewish court of the day that would have convicted this woman of adultery, even though she was, quote, caught in the act. Why? Because there were rules about how this would take place. It wasn't that people could just, however they wanted, loosen, they can pick someone up and say, oh, this was that, and then they were executed. This wasn't a, this wasn't a, a loose society. The Jewish society, the law passed down from God was very, very specific about how somebody could be convicted and what the punishment for that conviction was. So when these Pharisees came to her, came in front of Jesus with this woman, who clearly had been set up, without the man, their case was, was lost. So when Jesus stands up in front of them and says, those of you without sin cast the first stone. I've always found that confusing because essentially... He's saying that, is he saying that only people that have no sin, only people that are perfect are allowed to punish or even call something else sin? I mean, that doesn't even make sense, really. How is anyone who, who if, if no one is perfect and we are called to be agents of righteousness in the world, how are we, how are we ever meant to judge anyone if no one's perfect? It never made sense. But that is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, those of you here that are accusing this woman, if you're without sin in this instance, if your hands are clean in this instance, then you, then you have the right and the qualification to be her executioner. And no one does. And it says that the older people walked away first because they knew the law. They knew the law. And they knew that what they had done was entrapped this woman. They'd done it in a deceitful way. So Jesus does not... Throw the law away. He doesn't choose grace in this sense over the law. He actually has a more pure commitment to the law than even the Pharisees do. And that's a very, very important thing for us to understand. Because Jesus throughout his ministry, um, you know, he was seen in this very, in this very, uh, patriarchal, this very um, strict society. He was seen as a lawbreaker. But he says in Matthew 5.17 that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That Jesus did not come, he didn't say, well, the law is no longer relevant. He says, actually, the law will always be relevant as long as there is humanity. And that's a very important thing for us to realize. And we'll we'll come back to it a little bit. But first of all, we just want to see that his commitment to the law is not less, but actually more than the Pharisees. <clears throat> uh, so what about his authority, his authority to judge? And this is where things begin to heat up in the story. By what authority did Jesus say to the Pharisees, actually, you're wrong in this instance. 
you're bringing this woman before me, but your case is actually wrong against her. I mean, he's telling who were essentially the judges of the day that their judgment is wrong. What authority did he have to do that? But he's, he's actually, he's not just saying, you know what, if you actually look at the law, it's a bit technical, just want you to see, your case is wrong here. He wasn't just saying that. He was actually saying something much, much more. And it's the reason why their reaction to it was so severe. Basically, we see um, in verse 6 and 8, it says, Jesus bends down, and he begins to write on the ground. I mean, a really kind of, kind of weird, bizarre thing to do. And actually, um, it's hilarious to look up uh, all of the commentary about what people conjecture he was writing in the ground. You know, it's, it's actually like up in the top ten questions. If, any, if you could be answered any question about anything, you know, like JFK, the whole thing laid out. This thing is one, in the top ten for a lot of people. What was Jesus writing on the ground? Um, and they're, they're really funny. Uh, so some people, a lot of people think that he was writing out um, the sins of the Pharisees, you know. Just sort of saying, like, you guys, you guys have been wrong in this, and actually I'm going to show you with, that I know what your sins were, maybe. Um, some people think that he was uh, just writing out the law. He was showing that, um, you know, that he was a literate person, that he knew the law. Uh, Not everyone was literate, obviously, in uh, first century Palestine. So he could have just been showing that, you know what, I can actually write, so you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. Uh, You get a lot of emotional answers. He's writing things. He he writes the words, I love you, in every language, Uh, current language, future language. Um, You know, I mean, it, it gets really bizarre. Some people just think he was doodling, that he was there making a little smiley face and doing emojis or something on there. I don't know, that would... Whatever the emoji sequence is for, you're wrong. I don't know. Um, maybe. The simple fact is that we have no idea what he wrote. It's not in there. It doesn't allude to anything. It doesn't give any indication. So it's really anyone's guess. It could be any of those things. Um, I think it's an interesting detail of the story that somebody said he bent down and wrote. I mean, why, why would that be included if it wasn't you know, in, in, in something that somebody was seeing. It seems like a too, too close of a detail if it wasn't an eyewitness testimony. So to me, that actually lends some credibility to this story. Um, one commentator, as I read, had a very interesting perspective on it. And I think that he's on to something here. Um, verse 6, when it says, When Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground, it says he started to write on the ground with his finger. So the author takes great pains, and this is not the only time, he takes great pains to explain the method in which Jesus wrote on the ground with no consideration for the content. I actually believe that if we needed to know the content, the content would have been told. But we clearly needed to know the method in which he was doing it. Now, why would we need to know the method? When Jesus is bending down and he's writing with his finger in the sand... Every Jew of the day, especially the Pharisees, would know what he was alluding to. They would have seen that, and it would have shocked them. And essentially, it goes back to one of the most revered moments in the Jewish history. It's found in Exodus, when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. It's the moment in which 
the nation of Israel is set apart by God through the law. The very beginning of the law that these Pharisees are saying this woman is guilty of. The story says in Exodus 31, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. The Jewish people believed that the tablets were actually inscribed, by the, written by the finger of God, the law, the law of Moses, the very law that this woman was being accused of breaking. Jesus stands there in front of the midst, and he bends down, and he writes with his finger to say to them, you come against me with this accusation against this woman, and you're not coming against a teacher or a prophet. You're coming against the one who wrote this law in the first place. You're coming against the one whose law... who who created this law, the author of the law. And that's why it shocked them. Because he wasn't just saying, you're wrong on a technicality. He's saying, you're offending the one who wrote it. He's essentially claiming to be God. And this, as you can imagine, (laughs) didn't, didn't help his case with the Pharisees because they... They weren't so much concerned the fact that he had a following as a teacher, but they were concerned with his claims to be God. And this is what Jesus does in the middle of this story, is he makes the claim that says, I am the author. I have the authority to look at this law and to declare verdict here. So his verdict for the guilty. Jesus has settled the legal question This woman, there's no legal case against the woman. The accusers see that he claims to be God himself, not just an interpreter of the law, but the author of the law. They've walked away, clearly stunned. He's there alone with the woman. What does he say? He doesn't say, congratulations, here's my card, get in trouble again, call me, I can get you off again on another technicality like this one. He doesn't. He's speaking not as a man. He's speaking as God. He had asserted himself as God. And he looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Go away in freedom. It it doesn't make sense. It's kind of a non sequitur whenever he says, where is everyone that has accused you? Has no one accused you? And she says, no one. For him to say, great, well, I I don't condemn you either. And uh, then to say, now go leave your life of sin. They don't really go together. He was, when he says, I don't condemn you, he was looking at her life. He was looking at her. And he, he, he saw the guilt that she had, that she was wearing. It wasn't about getting away on a technicality. He looked at her life. He looked at her guilt. And he says, I, God, the author of the law, I don't condemn you. Now in the freedom that I've given you, go walk in freedom. That's what he's saying. And that's the essence of Christianity. And I think the further we get away from that, the further we get into less and less helpful uh, circles in thinking about what Christianity is. The essence of Christianity has never been that good people get better. It's never been about you're living a pretty good life. Now you can live a better life. The gospel has always been about guilty people walking free. It's about guilty people leaving their guilt at the foot 
of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, the foot of the cross, and walking away free. It's always been about that. You know, I can appreciate a God that makes my life better. I can be thankful for a God that makes my life better. I can, you know, you know, come to church for a God that makes my life better. But when we talk about serving, loving, being transformed, we've got to talk about something more. We've got to talk about the guilt that you may have and I have today. We have to talk about the things that make our lives what they are. The pain, the pressure, the sin in our lives, standing there. There's no question of guilt for many of you this morning. Christianity is about relieving that burden, laying it at Jesus' feet, and walking free. So just a couple, um, couple thoughts by way of application of how we can, how we can take this. Um, first of all, Jesus is a refuge for the guilty. He's a refuge for the, for the guilty. If you're here this morning, and as I said, there's, there's no question of the guilt in your mind that you're guilty. This isn't everyone in here. But if you're here and you say, I know I'm guilty, there's no, this isn't about guilt, this is about punishment. I, I've, I've come to realize that guilt works in, in, in different ways in different people. And it can, either, it can either bring you into fellowship with God or it can be the very thing that drives you away. It can be the very thing that says, well, I don't want to go into that place. I don't want to be with those people. I don't want to go to this group. Because of the guilt that I have, because of what's in my life, it's, and it's the opposite response that we should have. That Jesus is a refuge for the guilty. He always has been. It's always been. His MO is to pursue people that are guilty. He pursues them. It's never been standing and letting good people find their way to him. And you know what? If you make it there, then you've got Jesus. It's never been that. It's always been the person standing there in guilt and Jesus coming in and laying his hand and giving healing, redemption, freedom. Because it's not simply out of, of uh, you know, like the goodness of Jesus' heart that he says, well, you screwed up, you know, you messed up, but you know what? Good news, I'm a forgiving God. I'm going to forgive you, so you go free. It's not that simple because his commitment to the law continues to be too great. That he can't just simply give forgiveness, loose, as if there was no law. And he didn't do that. And that's not what's on offer here today. Is a, is a cheap, easy, limitless, uh, you know, high of feeling good that my sins are gone. That's not what Christianity offers. It offers you a choice to receive something that has been paid for. The burden has been paid. The punishment has been, has been paid. What, it, what, is, what was her punishment? Death. Destruction. She's done. Guilty, charged, death. What did Jesus do? He came in. What did he receive? Death. For you, for me. That's why he can say, 
bring me your guilt, bring me your sin, bring me your shame. Not because I just, I'm just throwing out forgiveness as if it's nothing. Everyone, who wants it? Like rocket cannon t-shirt in the back, everyone's getting it. No, this stuff is weighty. It has substance. It's his blood that paid for it. So that should do two things to us. It should make us go, wow, okay. But it should also be the thing that in your mind, when you've received it, you receive something that is weighty. You receive something that, that, that can block any accusation that comes at you because it's not something that's easy, free, and cheap. And it never has been. And it never has been. If you receive it in a, very, in a cheap way, then it's, it's not going to penetrate because guilt is real and pain is real. And, and we all have pasts that are heavy. And you need something heavy. You need something heavy to stand in the gap. And that's what is on offer in Christianity. <clears throat> but it comes to the guilty. It doesn't come to... If you, if you don't see yourself as a guilty person, what, who needs a savior then? And that's fine. I, if, you're, if you're there this morning, you're like, uh, the thing I don't like about Christianity actually is I think I'm okay. Like, this is ugh, guilty ugh, according to who, according to what law. Great. You're not there. Please, keep coming back. Let's discuss. Let's, let's, let's dialogue about this together because it's really important. I don't want to put, I don't want to impose guilt on any person here that doesn't feel it. But my suspicion is that more people than not here today stand before the Lord, stand before just just walk into their lives carrying burdens of guilt. In this story, if anything, what does it say if it doesn't say that Jesus, what is, what is it saying if it's not saying that Jesus loves to redeem even the most bizarre, crazy, insane circumstances? I mean, she could have been doing anything. They chose the worst, grossest thing to put up there in shame, the biggest shame. What is this story saying if it's not saying whatever circumstance you've walked in here this morning, it's covered. I have it. Jesus is a refuge for the guilty. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is the judge. He's a refuge for the guilty. Uh, Just a couple things more uh, before we're out of time. Um, Be aware of your accusers. Be aware of your accusers. And, 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 And just quickly, twofold. Accusing is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of harsh term, but I mean it in this sense. There are people, there, there are some, some actually physical people accusing you right now in your life. And they may not even know that they're doing it. Um, but you hear their voices in your head. They could be coworkers, They could be a family member. They could be a spouse. Something they said, it's in there. It's accusing you. It's, 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 it's so hard because it's like, 
it's an insidious thing. Uh, Jesus says, there's this, there's this place in Matthew 16 where he says, be on guard for the, for, of the yeast of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees. Again, super weird term. So this goes back to us trying to investigate to understand what it means. What is he saying? The yeast of the Pharisees. He's saying that, yes, these men are accusing people and they're wrong, but there's something else about them. There's a spirit about them that gets in to us like yeast. You don't see it. You don't know that it's working. You don't, you don't pull out a nice big loaf of bread and say, oh, that's some great yeast. You just say, that's a great loaf of bread. It's insidious. And Jesus is saying, be on guard in the, of the spirit of religion. You have many accusers. We all have many accusers. But we also have one accuser that is not a person that is looking around, that is roaming around, accusing you, turning things in to accusations and weights and heaviness on your heart. Um, we need to be aware that we have an accuser and we have accusers. Um, you know, try to, try to take a message like this. Try to take something, okay, God's forgiven me. I know that. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to start operating in that way. Like, just try. It's really hard. Like, more often than not, we get, held, we get held up. Why is that? You have an accuser. If you don't acknowledge, if you don't acknowledge the accusations, then you're going to constantly be going into them and you're going to feel the weight of them without addressing them. Because the, the, the story makes, makes allowance for that. You have accusers, but you have a redeemer. You have accusers, but you have a redeemer. And so instead of just trying to mentally overpower these things, take those accusations to the cross. And like the woman standing there, you say, I stand here un, I'm not, and I'm not condemned. But we can't deal with it in our own way. We certainly can't deal with it if we don't know that we're being accused and we're not, we're not aware of it. So I just encourage you as you're thinking through ways that this can apply be aware of accusations that are happening. And, um, you know, if we, uh, it's some, sometimes it's even helpful for me to, to write them down, you know, because they come, from, they come from places that you may not even, you may not even expect. <clears throat> uh, another thing that we can apply, living in freedom, and I'll close on this one. What does it mean for you to live in freedom today? Well, if the story tells us anything, we know that it has to start. It has to start with forgiveness. That Jesus didn't say to the woman, leave your life of sin and I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you, now leave your life of sin. It's true that God very often, I would say almost always, gives a word of, of, of blessing, a word of forgiveness, with a word of growth and a word of encouragement. Which is an interesting thing, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, things that we care about, things that we love, we, we aren't satisfied with them staying where they are. But do you feel Jesus' call to, to, to live in a different way as a burden, as, 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 a, as duty, or as somebody who loves you and wants to see your beautification, that wants to see your fulfillment, that wants to see the absolute uh, fullness that you can be and live? I, I sometimes interpret these things as, as, as duties and as weights. And that's a product of the, of the accuser. 
But Jesus says, I don't condemn you out of the freedom that we have. We have the ability to follow after the one that has given us that freedom. To follow after the one who is calling us into a deeper, fuller life. And it doesn't just stop here. No, no. It goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. That it's not just about making your life better now. That when Jesus calls us into freedom, he calls us into eternal freedom. That it's not just a taking away of your sin, but it's a putting on you an inheritance of glory. It's a taking away and a receiving. It's both. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that the coming ages, in, the, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The story begins with accusation and it ends in freedom. Where are you in that spectrum most of the time? Uh, We're going to close in prayer, and I just want for these next moments would be wonderful for you to, as we take a moment of silence, to just assess that for yourself. Where am I in the spectrum of accusation and freedom today? And then as we come and we worship, Jesus is a refuge for the guilty. Go to him. As we take communion, let that be your assurance that Jesus is with you, he's for you, and he's freed you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful for your wisdom, for your gentleness, for your authority. Lord, we thank you that you are rich in mercy. We thank you that you look at our lives. You look at our guilt. You look at our shame. You look at our sin. And you say, I love you. I don't condemn you. Come with me into a life and a future of freedom. Lord, help us, I pray. Even even our ability to maybe for some people in this room, for the first time in a long time, to turn and to face their guilt. Give us the courage to do that, Lord. And Jesus, come swiftly to rescue. Come swiftly to save. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.